Good morning. Uh, Pastor Pat is gone this morning, and I get to uh, preach in his place, and I uh, consider that a privilege, and uh, so it's good to be with you this morning. At least it's not raining right now, probably will be soon as we're done. <laughs> We've had plenty of rain. I'm not complaining. I actually put a new lawn in this year, so this has been wonderful for me. And you might say, okay, you're the reason then. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to take them and open them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We'd like to look at an Old Testament story this morning. The, our series, as you remember, is the unshakable faith, the unshakable faith. Pastor Pat, last week, covered the unshakable word of God and uh, very inspiring to anyone who listened as far as the key place that the word of God plays in our lives. And uh, he quoted so many verses, and I hope you got the list of verses on your email of all the ones he wasn't able to use. But I remember several he talked about that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is unshakable. He also stated, and Jesus stated, is that uh, not one jot or tittle will in no wise pass from the law until all is fulfilled, the jot and tittle being the smallest part of the Hebrew alphabet. That will be fulfilled. You can count on the word of God being fulfilled. I remember another passage in John chapter 12, maybe he didn't use, but Jesus simply said, the words that I speak to you, those same words will judge you on the last day. And so the word is unshakable. It is constant. It is powerful. This morning, what we would like to look at, and uh, that is the unshakable servant of God, which we are going to gain from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a very interesting passage, and uh, we want to look at that this morning. But you know, the world in which we live is very shakable. I mean, when you consider all the things that go on, like in the world, I don't know if you ever watched the news, I'm sure numbers of you do. But, you know, and you look over at what's going on in Iraq and how these these uh, Islamists are going about and in, in, uh, conquering this city, overrunning that city, sometimes executing different people, that would be a pretty unstable environment to live in, wouldn't it? You know, this week we celebrate, you know, the 4th of July. I always have to remember that because my wife's birthday is on the 4th of July, so everybody celebrates her birthday. But the idea is... We've lived in a very solid country in many ways for many years that we take for granted. It'd be very different, and we lived in different parts of the world. Talk about fickleness or shakableness. If you watched the World Cup yesterday, Lucas, what would have happened in Brazil yesterday if they would have lost? The whole place would have come apart, wouldn't it? I, yeah. They're still in there by the skin of their you know, wow, that was close yesterday. But the world is very shakable. When you look at, like, the, the, the world scene, the home front, everybody says the economic picture, picture is stable, but most of us are very suspicious of that. When you think of the debt that our country is generating, the average mind has to think, 
How long can we keep doing this until the country collapses? I have no idea, but it doesn't give you a sense of being solid when the debt keeps rising like nothing else. When you look at the Christian front, it seems in the world in which we live, it seems like so many people are building thing, building things on human experiences that are quite shallow. And, and so even on the Christian front, you wonder, on the family front or any front, relationships with people go up and down and they cause our world to shake. When you think of the personal front, it seems to me that much of the Christian world that that different ones are trying to seek a life that was pleasing to God and yet they don't know how to do that. Their lives are just non-meaningful so they end up running after idols that the world runs after. All of this makes for a very shaky type of age in which we live. Isaiah as well, who lived 700 years before the time of Christ, lived in a very shaky world. And I think it would be good for us to get a glimpse at what God did for Isaiah in his setting so that we might learn from that as well. And so with that, I want, uh, I want us to take a look at Isaiah chapter 6 and especially verses 1 and 5, as we look at this passage, well, let me, let me just read the first five verses first, and then we'll look at verses 1 and 5. Follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, as you look at this occurrence in the, in the life of Isaiah, I'd like to point out several things for, for us in the text that I think will help us be able to identify. When you look at Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1 and verse 5, there's a key word that stands out to us, and I want to point it out to you so you can go back and look at this text. But notice how verse 1 starts. In the year that King Uzziah died... There's the word king, very important. It refers to the human king that was alive during the time of Isaiah. Actually, now that he he dies right here in this year, but very familiar Isaiah is with him. Then in the last part of verse 5, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It's the only two times in this passage that the word king is used. So the idea here as God is beginning to reveal to Isaiah what he wants to say, he does want us to draw a comparison between the kings and it's going to be essential. The whole vision is actually built on that. 
You know, it, it is interesting when you study different prophets. For instance, if you study some of the other major prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, when it talks about kings in their time period, it will say, hey, in, in the years of numbers of kings, that's when Jeremiah preached to us. Or in the book of Ezekiel, in the fifth year of this king, so-and-so spoke you know, spoke to, uh, spoke to Ezekiel, God spoke to Ezekiel. Or in Daniel, it says, in the third year of king thus and thus. Always important to, to, to focus in on the king that was alive during the time in which you ministered. It seems very commonplace. Notice it doesn't say, in the year I was married, or in the year my third son was born. It's, it's the king that's the important part. But you know, in each of those other occurrences that I mentioned, the kings were alive. When you come to this phrase, it's very interesting and should draw our attention. When Isaiah talks about his time in ministry, he actually says in the year that King Uzziah died. Why didn't he write in the first year of the king Jotham, who was to follow Uzziah. Why does he pick on the name Uzziah when he died? Why doesn't he use the living king like the other prophets did? It's very interesting to me because I think God is trying to help us lay hold of what's going on in the historical context here. And I think if, if you think of what's going on, there's a reason for that. If we would become a little bit familiar with Uzziah, which I'd like to just have several facts put up about Uzziah's life. You can find these, and I'd encourage you to read them in Second Chronicles chapter 26. This was a very famous king, one of the most famous in all of Israel. In fact, when you look at it, even the very first note that you have that states in 2 Chronicles 26, he reigned for 52 years. 52 years he brought stability to the nation of Israel. I mean, Israel at times is overrun by the enemy. They would fear that. Yet Isaiah remembers this because as a young man, he grew up under the reign of this king. And it was stable. He was thankful for Uzziah. And I think we would be too, wouldn't we? The next king that's coming after Uzziah, Jotham, is only going to reign 16 years. And it's possible that 10 of those years he reigned with Uzziah. So maybe only 6 years. And he also had a positive reign. But nothing like the 52 years that Uzziah had. Other things about Uzziah that that chapter spells out, it says that the Lord God made him to prosper, and he did prosper. He expanded the kingdom. In fact, it's sort of, it talks about his equipped army. It talks about the numbers that he had. And they built fortified. They fortified many places with towers. It talks about the agricultural part of the community, that it prospered, that, that as they went through, that the livestock, the vineyards, it all prospered. And it says on two occasions in 2 Chronicles 26, his fame spread far and wide. So you can almost imagine that Isaiah, young man, called into ministry here by God, probably would have been overwhelmed to come into the presence of Uzziah, this great king who had reigned for 52 years. See, Isaiah was impressed with this one right here. He was impressed with this king and probably should be if 
We're impressed by human heroes. And I think our world is as much impressed by human figures as possible. Now, as you keep that in mind, as we think of that, here's the underlying theme that God is trying to say to you and me as well as we look at this passage. Could Isaiah be the prophet that God wants him to be if he gains his security from the king that's set up? Or is he going to have to go deeper than that? You know, when you look at our culture, it is the norm for us to build our stability in human relationships and experiences, isn't it? Isn't that what we default to? I mean, when you look at as far as heroes are concerned, is our age of heroes, wow, all over. Whether it be a sports figure, whether it be a musician, whether it be a famous pastor or speaker. We probably could all name the ones we really love to listen to. But I think the question is, as you look at Isaiah and as you look at our life, is it enough for us to build our stability on a horizontal human plane? You know, even if you think of the picture that you have to introduce this series, it pictures a tree digging the roots deep down. And I think the reality that's taking place as God comes to Isaiah is this. Isaiah, if you're going to just spread your root horizontally, you aren't going to stand. And I think if we could go through this auditorium, there would be many of us that have plenty of time to spend with human horizontal, but do we really dig our roots deep into the very character and person of God? That's what's taking place here as you look. So as we keep that in mind then, as as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, keeping in mind now that Isaiah, he's calling Isaiah to come into a very real setting. Now notice again Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, there's your human king, I saw the Lord which is the divine king sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. What temple is he talking about? Obviously he's talking about a heavenly temple. Clearly Isaiah knew all about the human temple that existed in Jerusalem at the time, but this is a different temple altogether. And as Isaiah starts to look at this, there are certain things that are going to stand out to Isaiah that are very different than the human king and the human temple that he was used to. And so God is trying to bring him in to draw us in. He wants to take Isaiah out of his human world, at least temporarily, into this eternal temple with this eternal God to give him an entirely different perspective of life. Do you think we might need something like that in our lives as well? But here's some of the things that would stand out to Isaiah, I'm certain. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. 
Now, I'm certain that once in a while, maybe King Uzziah sat on a throne, but I would guess if he knew the life of Uzziah, he was about activity, running here and there, fighting battles, doing this, work never done, keep going, hoping to keep things in balance, all of those things Uzziah was doing. But when God is pictured on the throne, almost every time that you see it, it gives this, sitting upon the throne. This song that we just sang from the book of Revelation, I love that song. It really just speaks of the glory of God and had a young man that was here last week that mentioned to me that a year ago when he was here, after doing Bible studies, he came into this church as he listened to that song, it led to his conversion. Powerful song. But the idea, God is sitting on the throne. What is sitting communicate to us because in revelation when it talks about the throne there seven times in revelation chapters four and five it talks about he who sat on the throne he who sat on the throne he who sat on the throne it sort of gives you the idea that he's very much in control he is reigning over the entire world And everything is under his control. Does that relax you at all if you understand with all of the ups and downs and everything going on, there's a God sitting on the throne right now. He's sitting. I think that probably stood out to Isaiah as he looked at this passage. There's, and the other thing is train, fill the robe. I mean, probably Isaiah had been in a temple before, but anybody in that temple, if the king had come in, I don't think it would have filled the whole temple. This one did. So clearly that would have stood out to Isaiah as well. There's several other things I think that stand out to him. It talks about not only him sitting on the throne, but notice high and lifted up. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. He is exalted above measure. Now, this is very hard for us probably to envision in our mind. Isaiah, in his writings later on in Isaiah chapter 40, gives us Three, there's more pictures, but I'm just picking out three that try to talk about the vastness of God, which is hard for us to understand. The very first one, and and you can read these later on as well in Isaiah chapter 40, it says that he can measure the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Now think about this just for a little while. As we just went through the airliner that was lost, they think, close to Australia, it seems like no one knows. Why couldn't they find the plane? Well, if it goes down too deep, there's no way to do that. Do you know how deep the ocean gets in the western Pacific? Up to seven miles deep. Seven miles deep. Let me ask you, how much water can you hold in the hollow of your hand? Would it would, it, would you come close to being able to hold the oceans? I mean, wouldn't, doesn't that sort of blow your mind, the idea that in God's hands, if he had a body, God is a spirit, but if he had a body, he could hold the oceans in his hands. Talks about a pretty big God, doesn't it? Another picture that you find in Isaiah chapter 40 deals with the universe. It says, it says that, that he can measure the heavens with the span of his 
hand. The span goes from the thumb to the little index finger, so not very far. So as, as you look at that, the whole galaxy in the span of his hand, if you were to travel at a pace of uh, 100 miles an hour, how long would it take you to go from the span, from there to there, if your hand was that big? And I had Lisa look it up for me, Lisa Backey, and she said, Chuck, it would take 6.7 million years to travel from there to there on God's hand. I mean, they're just trying to give you a sense and a picture of the bigness of God. He's bigger than anything we can imagine. Do you see what God is trying to do here with Isaiah? Because Isaiah fix on Uzziah. Oh, this is a great king. And God is trying to say, Isaiah, listen to me. You can't build depth on a human king. You've got to get a different vision. You need a divine vision. You need a vision of the divine king. If you're going to minister for me. There's another picture that Isaiah says, and you could do so many, but if you see that little drop right there that's just about to go in the barrel, it says in Isaiah chapter 40 that all the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Right there. All the nations, that's how they are in their size with God. You see, as Isaiah would look at this, God knows that Isaiah needs to dig his roots deep into the person of God, not into some human element that we have a tendency to do. All of us do that. God wants Isaiah to experience something totally different, so he takes them, takes them into the divine element of God's greatness. Not only his greatness, he wants Isaiah to get a picture of his holiness, which is very apparent as you look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now the word Lord there, all capital letters, is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Do you ever think how foolish it is in God's mind for someone to build their stability on something that is human when He exists? God's gracious with us, tries to help us understand that we need to go far deeper than the things that happen all around us, but into the character of God. But here the holiness of God, the self-existent one, is being talked about. It says holy three times. Holiness speaks about his separateness from sinful activity, that he's totally pure, separated from evil. And notice the one that proclaims it here. As you look, as you progress through Isaiah chapter 6, you start with this picture of God. Now it moves to the angelic realm, and it's one of the angels, the seraphim, who's a special type of angel who cries this out. Now angels, for the most part, totally follow the will of God. There was a rebellion that took place with Satan. It talks about in the book of Revelation where a third rebelled. But after that rebellion, they're either in Satan's service or God's service. The ones that are in God's service, to my knowledge, they don't sin. And here's an angel who is so overwhelmed by God's presence that with two wings he covers his face because the glory is more than they can see. 
Two, he covers his feet, showing his humility. And two, he flies so that he can minister and cry out. They are overwhelmed with the holiness of God and the character of God. So how will man respond in the presence of God? Well, we have that picture here too. Notice as you look, it says in verse 4 that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. (laughs) That's interesting. It doesn't even sound like that's God's voice. That's the angelic realm. And it shakes at at the angelic realm. What would happen if God speaks? It just as you go through this, it's so impressive. But verse 5, and I said, woe is me. This is Isaiah now. As he looks at this, as God has brought him into this divine realm. Woe is me. And as you look at the word woe, it brings out the whole idea of despair. Overwhelmed with despair. And then it talks about him being undone or lost. It's the idea of danger of coming into a violent end. And so Isaiah responds with the holiness of God so overwhelmed that he despairs because he feels there's going to be a violent end to his existence because he's there. So he speaks out and he says even more. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now here he is, the statesman of Israel, the great prophet, the one who wrote the book of Isaiah, which is one of the most powerful books in the Old Testament. The gospel is portrayed, probably never a true servant of God more than Isaiah in the Old Testament. And yet when he stands before God, he said, I am unclean. The word unclean is used of numbers of things within the Hebrew environment. It speaks of foods that God didn't want them to eat or participate. It speaks of immorality that people would be involved in. It even speaks of leprosy, where you cried, unclean, unclean. And when you look back at the story of Uzziah, Uzziah, although a great king, If you read through the whole story, at the end of his life, with 10 years left, Uzziah moved into the temple, and because his pride had lifted him up, he decided he was going to do one of the functions that only the priests are supposed to do, that is to offer incense unto God. And so Uzziah moves into the temple, he's about to do that, the priest confronts him, what are you doing? And yet in his pride, he furiously states, I'm going to offer incense to God. And as he did that, and as he moved, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the priests stood back, and they saw what was going on, and they knew leprosy was not allowed in the temple. They grabbed him quickly. They moved him out of the temple. They put him in a house where he lived by himself for the next 10 years until his death. Unclean. So as Isaiah looked, he said, look how different this king is. Totally holy, totally pure. This human king, although tremendous, moved with pride, had leprosy because of disobedience. What a difference. But notice what Isaiah says here. 
He didn't just look at Uzziah and says, Uzziah's unclean. In fact, he doesn't even say that, although he could have. He said, I am unclean. And then he says, not only that, in other words, I am as guilty as King Uzziah. I am as unclean as him. Boy, one thing should impress you as you look at this. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you ever talked to people as you would say to them, Hey, Joe, what do you, what do you think? Do you think your chances of, of getting to heaven are pretty good? Oh, yeah, they're probably okay. Well, why would you say that, Joe? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I, I think I'm okay. I don't know how many times I've heard that, a version of that. I mean, I hear it all the time. Why? That's the way I used to think too. Do you see that anybody, depending on their own goodness, their own religion, do you see what's going to happen to them in the presence of God? They won't have a chance. Because something far greater than human goodness is needed. In fact, Isaiah is the one that writes in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. He says this, all our good deeds are like what? Filthy rags. Why did Isaiah write that? Because Isaiah went through this experience. He knew they were worthless Your goodness would never gain entrance into God's kingdom. If you're here this morning and you're resting on your goodness, you're in trouble. I'll tell you that right now. You're in big trouble, just as I was. Now, there's a message of hope here. um, I wouldn't stop right there. There's a message of hope. But if you're going to rest on the human environment, your human goodness, it'll never take you in. Isaiah, in his divine vision and realm, is impressed with the very character, the greatness of God, the holiness of God. Now look at verse 6 as you follow the text. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, what's interesting to me, and all we can look at is the text, it's almost like the angel took the initiative. It's almost like the angel recognized, I, I, don't, I don't think this human being can, he, is, he can't, I've got to cleanse him. He doesn't fit. So the angel pursues with the coal to cleanse Isaiah so he could stay in the presence of God. Now, Notice what it says, verse 7. He touched my mouth. And and you know the Bible says, why did he touch Isaiah's mouth? Well, the Bible says that that, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth simply gives evidence to who you are on the inside. I hope you realize that. And so by the cleansing of the mouth, it's talking about the cleansing of the entire individual. If the mouth doesn't fault in word, that man indeed is a perfect man, James says. But that's where we all fall down because our mouth actually reveals who we are on the inside. It gets us all in trouble, doesn't it? And that would be true with Isaiah. So he touches the lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
And although this passage doesn't really detail the redemption plan of God in the person of Christ, the New Testament is replete with it. If we took time, we could go to Isaiah chapter 53 where it talks about that, that we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And it's by his stripes we're healed. Isaiah knew that. He wrote that. So we understand from the New Testament that we, by faith, if we would admit our guilt as Isaiah is doing right here, that we are undone, unclean, and we come and look at the cross and see what Jesus has done, and we place our faith in his work, in his performance, God would grant to us a righteousness that would allow us to be in the presence of God. That he states in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, where he says, God will give them garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness that you receive by faith in Christ. And if you have never received that, you will never come into the presence of God. Never. That's why we give thanks to God for Jesus. Because without that work, there's not a prayer of us coming into the presence of a holy God as talked about by Isaiah so that is there. The whole redemptive plan is being pictured here. And boy, if you need to talk to someone about that, please see us afterwards. We'd love to explain that. But now as you look at the, the rest of the passage here, it talks about the commission, which we're not going to spend a lot of time, but this is interesting. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 now. After that cleansing takes place, and you're never ready to serve God until you're cleansed. A lot of people get the cart before the horse here. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now, <laughs> this is so interesting because put yourself in this heavenly scene for a while. Here's God, divine, greater than what you could ever imagine. He's surrounded by a heavenly host that cries out, holy, holy, holy. And then there's Isaiah. So God calls out to get volunteers to see who would go for him. Who would be the most, least likely to raise his hand in that setting? Would, would you have opened your mouth if you were Isaiah? Wouldn't you sort of been afraid? I, I, I don't, you know, his I, but no one, I don't know if no one responded, but Isaiah now did. Now there's reasons for that. Because in the very economy of God, God has chosen to use sinful, forgiven men to reach other men. God decided, I'm not using angels. And he doesn't. He allows us to participate in that ministry. We should actually be thankful for the great privilege of doing that. So Isaiah says, as you see it, here am I. Now I want you to understand something here because oftentimes when I talk to people, share of the ministry that I have enjoyed and others have enjoyed, a lot of people get the idea that, oh, you know, 
I don't think I could ever, I'm not worthy, I've been too sinful, therefore I could never carry out any, I'll just stay in the back. I'm not going to get involved. Yet what's so interesting about this whole setting is Isaiah felt as low as anybody. And yet at the same time that he felt that low, he realized there was a divine presence here that would enable him to carry out that ministry even though he was very low. So what am I trying to say? There aren't any excuses, folks. Wouldn't you agree that we're as low as Isaiah? Isaiah would come before you and say, I am as low as you all are, if not lower. Reminds you of the Apostle Paul. But God has commissioned us. And so Isaiah says, here am I. And at this point, God is going to send Isaiah, but we need to understand something because this is so important to us as we look at this. If Isaiah was only going to build his life horizontally and not dig his roots deep down into the character of God, I would guess his ministry would be a flash in the pan. And that's so often that I see take place in the Christian world, those who want to serve the Lord and they'll serve for two weeks. That's it for me. What does that say to me? To me, it says that their trust and their roots are very shallow. And God knew, because if you read the whole text, and we're not going to be able to study the whole text, but if you go home and read it, you tell me if the audience that Isaiah is going to speak to is going to be an encouraging audience to address. And you're going to find out they're not. They're not going to be encouraging. They're not going to respond the way Isaiah would like them to respond. There will be some. There'll be a remnant, it says, but just some. And Isaiah said, well, how long do I have to keep doing this? All the way until the end This was going to have to be a long-lasting ministry. And what God, in essence, is saying, Isaiah, if you're just going to keep your focus on the horizontal, you're going to look at, oh, that's a great guy over there. Oh, I love his things. I'll quote him. Oh, yeah, that's a great woman there. Hey, and you're just looking horizontally. Your ministry is never going to last. You better deep, deepen down in your resources to the very person of God Because if you don't, it'll be very shallow. And can I say, even your experiences in life. Some of you are going through difficult trials right now, deeper than what you ever knew you would face. Many of us are going to go through those same type of trials. And what this passage is saying is unless you dig your deeps, dig your roots deep into God, you're going to crumble at those trials. It has to be deeper than the horizontal. It has to be like the picture that digs the roots deep down into the very character of God. That's an unshakable sermon. Let me just end with this. 
And it deals with something that J.I. Packard said. as he, he wrote a book, Knowing God. Interesting book. This is what J.I. Packard stated in his book. And I grabbed hold of it because I saw the truth of what he was trying to say. It isn't as much based in this passage as it's based in the book of Daniel, but they're very parallel. Notice what he says. Those who know God have a great energy for God. Have you ever felt like you've burned out in life, in ministry? I've known a lot of people that have said that. I don't doubt, I don't even know all the pressures that they face. But you ever think about the characters in the Bible that didn't seem to burn out? How come Daniel didn't burn out? How come Paul didn't burn out? How come John the Baptist could keep preaching until he took his life? How come he didn't burn out? How come Isaiah didn't burn out? Because those who know God who dig their roots deep have a great energy for God. That's why Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, those who wait upon the Lord, what? Shall renew their strength. That's the whole idea. Here's another one. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Have you ever taken a walk just trying to meditate on the word of God, the character of God, and wonderful thoughts come to your life that so encourage your heart? That should be a common thing in our lives. Those who know God have a great thoughts of God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. Isn't that true in Scripture? Those servants that served with Daniel, we don't care whatever king you can acknowledge us or not, we're going to do what's right. They're bold for God. Paul was bold for God. Why? They knew God. That's why. In a deep way. Those who know God have a great contentment in God. It reminds me of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. What else does it say? I shall not want. He found his contentment alone in the person of God himself. One girl tried to quote Psalm 23 once and she thought she had all the verses down. She got nervous and she said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want and sat down. And the person that listened to her said, she's got it. She's got the essence of that psalm. I wonder this morning, if we were to span across this group right here, how many of you are totally content with God and your relationship that brings such peace and joy to your life? Most of us are chasing idols and we miss the very person of God. Do you see what God did to Isaiah? Because Isaiah had his vision wrong. His roots were shallow. And God said, Isaiah, I need to take you into the divine throne. I want you to spend a little bit of time there, just looking 
at everything that you can see. Drink it all in. Let that become a forming part of your character and your person because Isaiah, if you'll do that, you'll be able to live on the human plane level with the deep roots going down. And you will be such a blessing and encouragement to the people around you. But Isaiah, unless you dig the roots in deep, your ministry will be short, it'll be shallow. I pray that God would give us deep, long ministries that would bring much glory and honor to his name. Let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this great experience that Isaiah had and that actually we participate in by the power of the Spirit of God as you take us into the very vision that Isaiah himself experienced. Father, many people here this morning, some may not even know you, And I pray for them that they would make that need known and that they would come to faith in Christ so that they would be covered by his righteousness. Many others here are very shallow in their Christian life and they're not even content. How could they be? They're looking for their joy and happiness in things that will never bring true contentment. Father, I pray that you might convict them that they would want this great contentment that comes from knowing you. That's what Jeremiah said. Let the person boast, not in his riches or his fame or his wisdom, but that they know me. That would be a great boast. Father, would you create that thirst in this group of people even today? And Father, for those that are seeking you, May you encourage their hearts to continue on their search. May you use all of us richly for your honor and glory. Help us to respond to your word. Help us to do what you'd like us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.